You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. You don't know my, co- my, my family had COVID and we, uh, though thank God it was like, uh, basically my kids had a fever for about an hour. Every time I sneezed, for about four days, my body felt like it was trying to destroy itself. Uh, and my wife was very lethargic for about three, four days. And then after that, it was just 14 days of positive tests and not being able to get out of the house, which was excruciating. And so um, all that to say that I have missed everybody here so extraordinarily much. Ooh, okay, sorry. Yeah, Thank you for loving on, uh, thank you for clapping for the sake of me missing people, because y'all are worth missing. Let me say that. I love y'all. I, um, we are great. Thank you. That's what I'm talking about, Jerry. Absolutely. Uh, let, let me say this, that uh, we constantly say uh, during communion, right before communion, that we aren't saved into just a relationship with Jesus, but a relationship with a community of people, uh, the community of Jesus. Right, the community of Jesus that points you to Him, uh, that points your eyes toward Him, uh, and when you, although I've talked to several of you during the course of that two-week space, there's nothing like this space right here where I see Daniel Cooper singing uh, and Laura playing. And by the way, give it up for Laura on the violin. Let's go. Uh, um, and you know, and Sean on the djembe, and I hear y'all singing, and there's this beautiful moment there where my attention gets pointed toward Jesus. I hope there's a moment where your attention gets pointed toward Jesus. And the truths that we say and claim that we rely on that during the week seem to get a little bit mild, right, in our own mind and in our own heart, they seem to become more vivid in that moment. And all of a sudden, the things that I claim I believe, my heart actually starts to believe. And, and I want to thank you for being that people, right? So thank you. Man, I love y'all. I missed y'all like crazy. Uh, for those of you that aren't here today, if you're listening or watching, I'm never going to forgive you for not being here on the day that I'm back, but we'll have to take that up a- another day. Um, <laughs> hey, well, obviously, I'm up here not just to gush over you, though I could continue gushing over you. I'm up here so we can continue our time uh, in worship by entering into the word. But before we do, I do have one thing I want to make mention of to you. Um, over the past few weeks, which included me and my family's time uh, secluding away from the world, one of the major things that, that we've been working on uh, is simply finding uh, a new location, right? And so while the Holiday in here uh, has served us well and served us for the season that we needed it for, um, we likewise want to find a place uh, that serves where we are and likewise at the same time serves where we're going, right? Serves where we are and serves where we're going. Uh, what that future destination looks like, I think one, obviously it's being closer to the people that we want to serve, although this is in the general vicinity. The goal has always been to be smack dab in the middle of the community that we want to serve. In addition, uh, we, we want to create a space where we have enough room to fit those people into this community of faith, right? Like I can off of the top of my head kind of name off of several people that aren't here this morning. And to be fair, there's already not that much space if those people join us right now and then we add more people into that, that the remaining chairs. All of a sudden, uh, the Holiday Inn 
starts to struggle a little bit, right? And so we also want to have that space, again, to, to think about where we are, serving and caring for our people that, that can constitute Refuge Community Church, but also preparing a place for those that aren't here yet, right? Preparing a place for them to say there is a community and a savior, more than a community, a, a savior who animates a community that invites you into being a part of this family. And there's space for you here. That's what we, we want to create. And so we'll be looking for that place. And the reason I'm telling you this, uh, we obviously would love that to be Rodriguez Elementary, but it may not be Rodriguez as well. And the reason I'm inviting you into this right now is because I want to invite you to pray for that with us. Uh, I want to invite you to pray for that. So this isn't an announcement of a new location. This is letting you know that we're, we're starting that process. And in that process, we want to invite you to pray for, uh, for us as we continue to look, right? Pray for our church. Pray that the Lord would give us wisdom and clarity and he would open doors that are necessary, uh, that, that are the right doors, in order to find that place that, again, serves where we are now, but likewise serves where we're going. And so start praying for that. Even today, I thought about doing it right now, but I got a lot of sermon to talk about, and it's been two weeks, so I was like, if I pray this prayer, we're going to be about 58 minutes. So I decided not to do it at this very moment. But even today, right, when you are at home this evening, this afternoon, man, take time and ask the Lord to give us wisdom to give us that clarity, to open the right doors. Uh, we want to create a culture where we are praying for this community of people, where we're praying for the direction of our church, uh, where we're praying for where we're going as a community of faith and how God is leading us to accomplish the mission and the work that he's given us. And so be doing that, and we want to invite you into that as we continue to work toward uh, that new location. Now, as of right now, we're going to be jumping into our time in the Word. Again, that's a time where we come together we connect with God through engaging his word together. Uh, and you've heard me say this before, but this is a time of worship for us. We're inviting God, uh, the Holy Spirit, to speak to us right now during this time. Right? That's what we're inviting him to do. And I want you to really stop and process this with me for a second before we move forward. We're opening these words and we're reading these words and we're thinking about these words together as we invite the Holy Spirit not just to inform us, not just to read these words and go, oh, that's interesting, but to transform us by his power as we meet him today, right? We're asking God to connect with us. We're putting ourselves in position and in a posture to connect with God. OCD is getting the best of me. Um, and in that posture, in that invitation, saying, God, transform me. Don't just inform me. Don't just teach me something new, but transform my heart and transform my life. Let me leave here worshiping you more, serving you and following you more closely, right? This is what we do in this moment. And so I want to set that pace because we're doing this together. I'm talking, and we may be reading words, but together we're seeking and connecting with God together. That's what we're doing together, inviting him to transform us. And as we jump into our word today, we're also starting a new sermon series called Transformed. Okay, we hadn't, I'm not sure if we had a chance to announce this, but, uh, but now you know. All right, so it's called Transformed, and, um, and here, here's what this is going to be about. It's the mission of every church to see lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus. That should be the mission of every single church. It's the vision of every church to see lives and even communities transformed by the gospel of Jesus. That includes us, right? That includes us. It's the church's goal, right? Our church's goal to see lives transformed by Jesus. Hear me, because it's the kingdom's goal to see lives transformed by Jesus, right? It's the church's goal to see people transformed and touched by the love of Jesus because it's God's, king, it's God's kingdom's goal to see lives touched and transformed by the love of Jesus. As the church, we are a living representation of God's eternal kingdom on earth, right? So when people are, are passing by right here 
and they look in and see a group of people sitting in this place, worshiping God and, and loving one another and spending like three minutes in the middle of songs, just go and like hug each other and be like, how are you doing? How, you know, what's going on? I miss you. I want to know you. That's a representation of saying, hey, there's a community that God is working in that he wants to display his intention for creation through. And that's what we're doing here together. And do we invite more and more people into that space to know our king, to serve our king, because he desires to be known. He desires for people to know his deep love, to know his affection, to know his mercy. And here's the thing. I think we get that. I think as a church community in here, as Refuge Community Church, I believe that we really do understand that. I would go so far to say that I think we've done a good job laying that foundation, connecting God's eternal kingdom to our local vision for our church. Right? And I think that's a good foundation. We've rightfully done that. Because if a church's vision is anything besides glorifying God and building on his kingdom, then we run the risk of beginning to build kingdoms that aren't his. Right? We begin to run the risk of building kingdoms that aren't his, that are, that are ours, that are maybe somebody else's, that, that seek to glorify that little castle crown in our logo more than the cross of Christ. Right? These are the type of uh, risks we run when we don't build on the proper foundation of saying this is about God's kingdom. And so we've rightfully made that the center focus of our young church. Yet as we move uh, into this next season, uh, after that, that long wait through COVID, a lot of y'all remember that, a lot of y'all were here for that. And finally, just this past fall, getting into meeting together regularly on a Sunday morning, uh, we also feel that it's time to start building a vision for our local church specifically. Right, building a, found, building a vision for our local church on top of that foundation that is God's kingdom. Again, not building a vision that supersedes the, the vision of the kingdom, but rather on that beautiful foundation to start building a vision for our church, a vision uh, for, again, how we're going to approach the work that God has for us in Southeast Austin, uh, the work that God has for us in terms of loving and caring for one another here uh, in this community. Uh, and we believe that a large part of that vision involves three words, connect, grow, and serve, right? That being shorthand for the idea of connect with God, grow with family, and serve the city. It actually is right over there on that large sign in the back corner, right? There are um, these three ideas that really start to build out what we're doing here at Refuge Community Church. Everyone seeks God's glory. I hope everyone that is a church, right? seeks God's glory. Likewise, I pray that every church seeks after uh, seeing people known and touched and, and impacted, transformed through the kingdom of God. Yet when we look at refuge, we want to emphasize these three words of this is how we do that, right? This idea that as a church, our health corporately as a church body will be gauged on whether we're connecting with God, growing with family, and serving the city. That's what we'll collectively gauge our health with, right? The idea that that your health as a member of this body, right, can be gauged on how well you're connecting with God, growing with family, and serving the city, right? The reality that when uh, a person enters our community, maybe after years away from the church or even coming out of a, a church environment that has hurt them, we want to create a place uh, where we offer them space to heal and grow in connecting with God, growing with family, and serving the city, the reality when a new believer comes to faith in this community, right? And, and they're looking around wondering, what do I do next? We want to point them to the rhythms of saying, well, brother, sister, we want you to connect with God, grow with family, and serve the city. 
as we move forward, these three rhythms, as we call them, are really going to be the backbone of how we do ministry, right? So when you think of your involvement here at Refuge, you want to kind of think of it in the context of these three ideas, right? Are you connecting with God? Are you growing with your spiritual family, right? And are you serving the city and community that's around us? Um, for the next three weeks, we're going to be focusing on really thinking through each one of these, right? I'm, fr- I'm, I'm a little frazzled right now because I was talking and it was so loud and then I'm, I'm talking now and it's like so quiet. And so <laughs> trying to get my bearings back about me. Next three weeks, we're going to be focusing on uh, thinking through each one of these. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to read each week the definition that we have for each one of these phrases, Right, And then from there, we're going to dive into what that looks like a bit more. And so today, uh, we're starting with, with maybe the most important of these three rhythms, which is the idea of connecting with God. Right Here at Refuge, our primary rhythm is that of connecting with God. That's why you're here. That's why you come to church. That's why you join a church community, right, for the means of connecting with God. And so how do we as a church understand the role of connecting with God? Well, like this. This is our language, our definition uh, for this rhythm. Above all else, humans were created to be connected with God, to connect with God. It's in being connected with God that we as people find the ultimate meaning behind everything in our lives. It's only in him that we find the hope, peace, and joy we so deeply long for and need. Right? That's our idea with connecting with God. Right? That really the whole of human existence only makes sense once that existence has been connected into our creator. Outside of him, the suffering makes no sense. The accomplishments make no sense, right? The things we enjoy make no sense. They're momentary, we enjoy them, and then they're gone forever. But yet when we're plugged into this creator and the love and the design and the affection he has for his creation, all of those things begin to make sense. Right? This is the idea of connecting with God for us as Christians. To help us understand this definition a bit more, we're going to um, see how this plays out in, in Scripture by taking a look at Acts 4, 13 through 18. To be 100% honest, we're primarily going to look at verse 13, but 13 through 18 is the context of what's happening there. And the main point I want you to walk away with is this. The extent to which you connect with God is the extent to which you will identify with Jesus. That's what I want you to walk away with today. The extent to which you connect with God is the extent to which you will identify with Jesus. That's what I want you to know. To help us see this idea a bit more, we're going to break down this text into two parts. First, false identities. We're going to talk about some false identities. And then after that, we're going to talk about the true identity. The true identity. Uh, This verse, I think I heard Sean mention this maybe last week. This verse isn't broken down into two parts like that. But these are the two things we're going to observe as we work through this text together. And then after those two points, we're going to end with some practical connection points, right? Practical ways that you can connect with God. So let's go ahead and dive in and start with false identities here. We're going to to kind of zoom through these a little bit. Uh, In our text today, Acts 4, Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin. Uh, This is like the full council of religious leaders in Jerusalem and uh, really for Israel at large. So not just the city, but but the whole of the country at large. And so these are the big shots, right? These ain't the small fries that that Peter and John are in front of. No disrespect, uh, but this isn't like the city council that, that John and Peter are called before, right? 
That's not what it is. As much as I got mad respect for the city council members of Austin, Texas, right? This is more like those televised congressional hearings that you see, right? You know what I'm saying? Let, let's put it like this. This is NPR, CNN, Fox News, not Fox 7, right? If that makes sense to you, right? So, so to categorize it, it feels severe because these are the big time people here. And they call them in because Peter and John are out in the streets preaching Jesus, the resurrection, the kingship, the lordship, the power of Jesus. The man that this group, the Sanhedrin, actually had just helped crucify just a few weeks prior to this moment. Now, if you're picking up on context clues here, that means they're probably not calling Peter and John into uh, this meeting to be like, hey, I think we might have made a mistake can you tell us a little bit more about this Jesus you keep talking about? Because we heard him saying it, and then we threw him up on that cross, but now we need to hear you say it. That's not these type of men, right? These type of men aren't the, hey, I made an honest mistake. I'd like to seek some apologies and learn from my mistakes. That's not these dudes, right? Rather, they're being called in because they want Peter and John to stop preaching Jesus, to stop preaching Jesus. And it's in this interaction that we notice something powerful. In verse 13, a beautiful identifying marker is given to Peter and John. Because of their boldness and their wisdom, they realized Peter and John had been with Jesus. Right? They say they, they looked at their boldness and, and they realized they were uneducated men. And they were like, man, clearly they have been with Jesus. This is the true identity that we'll get to in a bit. But here's the thing. If we take a closer look right at the history and context around this moment, the stories in the room, if, the, if you want to think about it like that, right, more than just seeing the, the, the walls and more than just seeing the setup, right, to look at the individuals in the room and say there are a bunch of collective stories in here that are coming together and having an experience together, but those individuals have their own stories, they have their own experiences, their own histories. If we take a look at those stories that make up the room, we get some clues as to some false identities Peter and John were probably having to resist. If we stop and take a look at the stories that make up the room, we get clues as to false identities Peter and John were having to resist in order to walk in this true identity in order to walk in this boldness, right? False identities they probably had to, to fight off, they had to wrestle with, that were challenging. And before we jump into those identities, though, I, I do want to be clear about what a false identity is. As, as, uh, as we say that word, a lot of us are probably bringing in assumptions or presuppositions about what that word means, and I want to clarify that. Are, are false identities false because they don't actually exist? Right? Maybe you're thinking, like, does that mean like uh, an identity doesn't exist when we take it? No, no, no. Their realities, the false identities we tend to take on are realities that we live with every day. Right? Realities that we've gone through or identify with, they're real. And so now maybe you're asking, well, is a false identity something I don't actually put my identity in? I just think I put my identity in that. No, again, we definitely put our identities in these things. They're real things we begin to use as a gauge to judge the rest of our lives. Right? They're very real things, real experience we use as gauges to judge the rest of our lives. It's almost like the governing characteristic that we use for ourselves. The characteristic we use to identify with the most and then as a result to judge other parts of our lives with. Right? That's what, what these identities come, come to really be. And, and if they're not fake and I really do put my trust in them, then what makes them false? Right, thank you for asking. A false identity, and I want you to write this down or, or take a picture of it, whatever you do. A false identity is an identity, an identity that promises more than it can ever actually provide. 
And a false identity is an identity that promises more than it can ever actually provide. It's an identity that tells you it can provide security, prosperity, control, relief. But at the end, the promises that identity makes are actually false. It's a false identity. What they promise is more than they can actually provide. And when we look at this moment, there's actually several false identities that we can assume uh, would be temptations for Peter and John. And the first one we'll work through real quick, is, as I alluded to, uh, actually is what the actual Sanhedrin alludes to. And it's that they look at Peter and John and say, look at where you came from. Right? It's the identity of where you come from, if that makes sense. Your history. Again, your story. Peter and John, we know from Scripture, were ignorant fishermen. This is how the rest of the world saw them. They were seen as being unworthy to challenge the educated and powerful men in the Sanhedrin. They had come from Galilee, which was largely considered a backwoods area of Jerusalem, right? Their accents from what we know in other parts of the Bible, the other parts of the Bible testify about the accent that would have come from Galilee, would have been an accent associated with that region and therefore associated with ignorance and being uneducated. Literally, people heard Peter talk and were like, oh, you're from Galilee, right? Whatever you can identify in your own, uh, let me be honest, right, all of us have this, this sinful hierarchy of accents that we probably have made up in our mind, right? Whatever you deem is the most ignorant sounding, that's what they would have sounded like to the people around them. This um, would have made them kind of like low class. Um, yeah, I think y'all get what I'm trying to paint with this. This identity, though, isn't limited to region when it comes to how we adopt it, right? This also includes what we look like. They weren't involved in a diverse community of people. Most of the people in their region looked very similar. For us, maybe it involves what we look like, right? Maybe it involves our culture, our socioeconomic class, our family history. It's everything that makes up the you of you up to this point. And this identity lies to us from two different directions, right? When confronted with a room like the Sanhedrin, an educated and powerful room, it says both, you don't have a place here to the poor. And then it goes to the, to the rich and says, you belong here. It lies to us from both directions, right? When confronted with suffering, this identity says, you deserve this. You can't get anything better than this to the lowly. And then it looks to the rich and says, but you don't deserve this. You deserve more than this. This isn't right. It says to the sufferer, you have nothing to contribute in the world. While it says to the upper class, no one other than you has anything to contribute to the world. It tells the poor to get everything you can and prove yourself because in proving yourself, that's the identity. And it tells the rich, keep everything you can because it's in the things you have that you find your identity. What a lie on both counts. What a lie from the pits of hell on both counts counts. I know that it's a lie from the pit of hell because this is the particular identity I myself would say I wrestle with the most. In fact, I had a wrestling match with it this week. For those of you that don't know, uh, we're part of a network of churches uh, from the hill country, a family of churches, right? Um, It's just a network of churches that have been planted through the lineage of Hill Country Bible Church up north. Uh, we weren't planted directly from them, but we were planted from like a great, 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 great grandchild of theirs, right? That type of idea. And, and when we get together, the, the, the pastors of this network get together, more than likely in one of their massive churches in North Austin, because all of the Hill Country Church North Austin's are like, like 500 people or like a bare minimum, right? 
And so we usually get together at one of those places. And when I enter into that room, I enter in, and I'm going to be vulnerable with you, I enter in as the only Latino man leading a church in that room. I enter in as the youngest lead pastor in that room. Uh, I enter in as the lead pastor of a, a new small church plant amidst these dudes that have like 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 8,000 members in their church. Right? And in those moments... In those moments when I'm looking at all these people and I feel so deeply isolated because all I identify with is that I'm a young Latino man who just planted a church in the room where it feels like no one there identifies with me or can relate to me because I'm the only one like me there. I start to struggle with these feelings where I don't want to say anything. They ask questions and, and maybe I even think of a good answer, but I think to myself, don't say nothing. Why? Because I, look who you're in the room with. They probably have something much better to offer than you ever could. But hear me, that's not the only feeling I, I wrestle with because there are other weeks where I jump in there and I just can't shut up. I just keep talking. There's no, like the filter completely comes off. I just jab and jab and jab and jab and jab and jab and jab because really I find that I'm wanting to prove myself in the midst of what I'm contributing. If I can talk so much that something I say lands to one of these men and earns their respect, that's where I'm identity lies then. Right? If I don't enter that room with my identity squarely on Christ, then it is a tormenting two hours for me. A tormenting two hours. But that's not the only false identity that we have here, right? We also have uh, identity of guilt, right? Identity of what we've done wrong. Um, there's, there's one more after this, but I want to mention this because um, this is actually one that I could see associated with one of the men that's standing before the Sanhedrin in this text, right? Uh, when we look at Peter, we're looking at a man that's marked by his failures. We're looking at a man that, in the context of Scripture, he's a man that's marked by his failures, uh, he's the one that cuts a dude's ear off when Jesus is getting arrested, right? He's the guy that denies Christ three times. And in one of those denials, he actually curses Jesus, right? This is a dude that if you were to look at him, you'd be like, man, that guy's kind of a mess up, bro. Like, he keeps on stumbling. And he was, like, real close with Jesus, and he still keeps stumbling. And so after Christ's death, it's no wonder that Peter just jets. He runs, right? He hides. Uh, he, he doesn't want to hear good news. It takes the testimony of Jesus' resurrection uh, because undoubtedly he is riddled with guilt and regret, right? That's what this identity begins to look like. This is, this is where this identity, identity finds its home. When we, when we live like this, friends, mainly and primarily associating with where we have failed, we weigh what we've done wrong above everything else we've done in our lives. It becomes the weight by which everything else in our life is gauged and judge. This identity tells us that we don't deserve anything good. We couldn't deserve anything good because think about all the bad I've already done. We feel guilty for the blessings that God has graciously given us, and we feel at home in suffering and loneliness when this becomes our identity. We expect things to go bad. We expect people to hate us. We expect people to find fault in us, so we often beat the other person to it. Right? We beat the other person to it, and we start fights and get defensive, and, and maybe we show what we think they want us to be and what we think they perceive us to be, or maybe we start to preemptively defend ourselves from what we assume they see us as, and all of a sudden we hurt people, and, and we get defensive, and we start arguing because we're wrapped in our own guilt. This slide tells us you're safer if you limit your expectations. Don't get your hopes up. Right? And, and, and treats the sins of others 
right, lightly, because they're not as bad as us. I can look past what you're doing because really, you're nowhere near as bad as me. I could never tell you anything because I'm so guilty. There's a flip side of this, right? And it's actually the man standing right next to Peter, John, that, that I think we can see maybe another false identity with, right? And it's the identity of success, the identity of doing things right. Uh, in the Gospels, uh, John is given a pretty good rap. He's given a really good rap, to be honest. He doesn't, he doesn't run far from Jesus uh, when Jesus is arrested. One account, uh, his own account, uh, has him sticking uh, very close to Jesus for the duration of Jesus' arrest uh, and, and passion sequence. And he's the only of the 12 disciples, from what we can tell, that's present at, at least the male disciples, uh, that, that's present at Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, Jesus looks at John and he's like, my man, take care of my mom. If that's not trust, I don't know what is, all right? If I, I got to trust somebody to be like, hey, man, can you take care of my mom while I'm not here? That's, that's big time trust, all right? So, so there's this certain mark in John's life where we kind of look at him and you're like, oh, John does pretty good, though. In fact, if there's a contrast between the two, Peter seems like the mess up, but John seems like the success. And, and here's the thing. It would have been easy in moments uh, like the one before the Sanhedrin to build an identity for John uh, that was based on I stuck by Jesus, right? I, I, was, I trusted Jesus, and he trusted me, and I earned that type of trust. This identity of really what we've done right begins to tell us that we're only as good as the good that we do. We're only as good as the good that we do. We're only as valuable as the success that we accomplish. It leaves us proud and fearful all at the same time, right? Always measuring ourselves by what others have done because if others are more successful, more skilled, more gifted, more charming, better looking, prettier, then they're better. They're better than me because the only way I can identify is through the things that I've done and accomplished. Right? It can also leave us paralyzed, paralyzed by perfectionism as well. Worried that if we start something new and we're not good in it, then that reflects on the identity that I've built in all the things that I've done well up to this point. Right? It's an identity that promises security. Hear me, as long as you can keep up. If you can keep up, I'll give you security. But the moment you struggle, the moment you fall behind, I'll, I'll grab that security away from you quick. It leads us chasing the next thing, the next phone, the next computer, the next car, the next house, the next degree, the next accomplishment, and leaves us dissatisfied when, when even if we reach one of those places, we don't reach it the way we think we're supposed to reach it. We, we're left dissatisfied and seemingly empty. It's a tragic existence. And hear me, it's a tragic existence because this one can maybe be even more detrimental to our health, right? Because this one masquerades as us thriving when in reality we're limping. I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear it. This one is detrimental because it masquerades as us thriving when in reality we're limping. But we have to just paint the picture. Man, I'm thriving. I've done it all. And I'm going to keep doing it all. Hear me, friend. That's only, that's only three false identities. Right? That's only three. Three that we can maybe pull out from, from what's happening in this text. There's several more. Right? There's several more false identities that we can build on. The question I have for you right now is what are you building your identity on? Right? What is your identity built on? What is it found in? Is it the provider? A lot of husbands, uh, a lot of fathers struggle with this one. Right? I'm, I'm only as worthy to the extent that I provide for my family. Right? Are, are you 
stuck in maybe the caretaker type of one. Only to the extent um, to which what I take care of is doing well, that's the extent to which I'm worthy. That's the extent to which I'm valuable. So if my kid is struggling, if my plant is dying, then I'm worthless. Right? Maybe that's you. All of them are false. Again, not because they don't exist. They very, they very really exist. But they all promise something they can't deliver. They all tell you you'll be secure. They all tell you you'll be prosperous. They all tell you you'll be safe. But they can't actually promise any of it. So where do we go then? Right? Where do we go? I can't put it, uh, my, my identity and where I've come from. I can't put it in where I failed. I can't even put it in what I've done good. And that was the main thing I was counting on, Josh. Um, where do I get my identity from if not from any of these things? And friends, that's where the good news of a true identity comes in, though. Again, when we look at verse 13, the Sanhedrin uh, themselves say, looking uh, in this powerful and moving moment, looking at Peter and John, and they see them uh, uh, amazed by their wisdom and their boldness, that, and they remark, these, these two individuals have clearly been with Jesus. They clearly have been with Jesus. Hear me, I, I want to make this very explicit to you. The only true identity we have is in Jesus. Why is it true? Why is it true? Because the claims that it makes, listen to me, the claims that it makes are true. Because the claims that it makes can't be false. When this identity says you're accepted, it's true. But I failed in, in so many ways. Doesn't matter. You're still accepted. But you don't know where I come from. Maybe I won't fit in. It doesn't matter. You're still accepted. But how, I haven't lived up to this certain set of expectations. It doesn't matter. You're still accepted. When this identity says you're loved, it means factually and forever that you're loved. But I've hurt so many people, but I still love you. Right? But, but where I come from, I'm not sure how to, how to interact with love because no one ever showed me love. Then you're going to learn because I'm going to love you. Right, but, but, you, but have I done enough to earn your love? That doesn't matter. I've already earned my love, and I'm going to love you. Right? When, when you're secure, it means, when it says you're secure, it means you're secure. Everything we long for, we actually and truly, finally and really receive it in this identity. That's why it's a true identity. Why? Because it's something that we just have to believe in? No. Why? Because it's just a mindset that we have to change? No. It's true because God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. It's true because Jesus enters into our world and takes on our sin, our oppression, and our failures. Right? We have been offered the exchange of our false identities, identities that say they will give us something they can't, in exchange for a true identity that says, I will give you what I have earned in exchange for your death on a cross. What good news? What insanely good news. And if, if all of that really stuck to the crawl of our heart and our soul, there'd be more. And I'm not trying to, to check you, but there'd be more than six people clapping. Because it's a reality that when we confront, when we're confronted with, and we look back at our lives, and we think about the moments that went down into suffering and went up into success, and the moments when pride clouded our thinking, and the moments when suffering, loneliness, and solitude just dragged us away from life's meaningful moments, all of a sudden we look at them and say, but you're saying there's something that, that I could get that ain't that. That's better than that. What good news. Friends, Peter and John stood before this group of men with their own stories, right, with their own stories of ups and downs, 
stories of success and of failure, stories of mountaintop highs and of valleys of suffering lows, but no longer before this Sanhedrin, before this group, were they defined by those moments. No, they were no longer defined by where they'd been or what they'd done, but they were defined by who was with them when all of it happened. They were defined, better yet, by who was, who was with them, caring for them, right? Friends, he's with you as well, right? The, the moments of suffering no longer identify and completely define who you are, nor do the moments of success. Right now, the beautiful truth of a Savior God who has cared and been present with you and loves you and desires to be for you and desires to bless you, right? This all of a sudden becomes the identifying marker to say, I've been with Jesus. He's no longer, his presence, in fact, is no longer my identity. He is my identity. It's no longer me that stands before you, right? It's Christ that stands before you. Now, friends, we're invited to identify with that cross, die to ourselves, die to our sin, die to our old way of living, die to our old identity, and pick up the cross, identify with Jesus. Let him be the governing characteristics by which everything else in my life is judged, both in his perfection, but more than that, in his grace and in his love, and to walk in the new identity that I've been given by him. What good news. But friend, I return to the point we made at the very beginning of this conversation. The extent to which you connect with God will be the extent to which you identify with Jesus. Are you looking at me right now and being like, man, that's so good, bro. Like I'm, I'm kind of lit off of that right now. And, and maybe you're not. Maybe you're sitting there processing it. I hope you get lit off of it a little bit later. But maybe you're sitting there looking at me and you hear me and you're going, man, that's good. But I feel like I'll never really get that. I'll never really walk in that. I feel like I'll never really get to, to be in there and to keep that. I'm going to just ask you a very straightforward question. And it's not the end-all, be-all of every single uh, reality, that, every dynamic that's involved in that struggle. But it is a really important question in that struggle. How are you doing connecting with God? How are you doing connecting with God? How are you doing reaching out, not waiting for someone to come to you and say, hey, how are you doing? I hope several of us in here can look at someone else and be like, yo, how you doing? But on your own, saying, I'm reaching out to you. I want to touch you. I want to hear you. I want to feel you. James literally says, when you take that step, he promises, I'm going to step back toward you. I'm going to take the same equal step toward you. How you doing connecting with God? Because we connect with him, as we receive the truths that we rely on here in this word, we open that Bible and we hear, right, that, that text in Romans saying there's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God. Right, when, when we look at Ephesians 1 and 2 and we see God's grace conquering every bit of our sin, doing the work of making us new and drawing us to him, and we think, I didn't do that, you did that, you're actively pursuing me and saving me. We're reminded of the truth that it wasn't us that found him, but it was him that found us. When we're actively connecting to God, the, the care and compassion and grace that we need to remind us of the beautiful identity that he's given us are there to be found. And so I ask you again, my brother, my sister, how are you doing connecting with God? Because the extent to which you connect with God will be the extent to which you identify with Jesus. 
Our job is not to earn a new identity, but to connect with the God who is our identity. And that's why here to close up, I want to take a step back. All right. I've been going hard in the paint for about 20 minutes. I got it on my timer. But what I want to do here is, is take a little step back. And what I want to do is, is offer some practical steps on what connecting with God can look like. Right? Maybe you're like, how do I even do that? Well, friend, this, here's some thoughts. Right? Um, the first is this. Come to church. Come to church. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about someone watching online. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but come to church, right? There is nothing that replaces that moment when you're hearing several people sing, oh, praise the one, right, uh, who's taken my, I, I, forgot, I was going to start saying that, I forgot the lyrics, but, <laughs> right? There's nothing that replaces that moment when you're hearing those truths sang, uh, over you and, and, and to God to remind us like, oh, he's victorious over the things that I'm struggling with right now. Oh, my guilt is trying to eat at me. No, nah, there's truth in this song as I hear these people singing that conquers that fear and that guilt, right? And sitting underneath someone talking about the graces of God and in a moment like this and opening his word, come to church to be around people who are going to say, I love you and point you to Jesus and point you to the truth of the gospel. The other one is be a student of scripture, Right? Be a student of Scripture. I want you to hear my emphasis. Be a student of Scripture. Right? What does that mean? I, I'm saying don't, don't kind of just read the surface level of it and go, all right, I'm done. I read my two verses of the day, and that's what I needed to check off the, 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 the checklist of how to earn my new identity, because that's not what we're talking about. If you're reading the Bible to check it off a checklist, you're probably trying to earn a new identity, and friend, you're already on the wrong path. But if you're reading to say, God, speak to me here, whether it's a word or a chapter or a book, I just want to hear you. I just want to feel you. I just want to know the truth of what you've done and how you've worked and what it means for my life. Be a student of that book. Study it. Treasure it. It's, it's the special revelation of God to the world to say, here's what I'm doing. And here is who I am. What a beautiful treasure we have. Practice prayer. I'm convicted, uh, as all get out saying this to you, because as your pastor, I want to be very honest. This is my weak link. If there ever was one to be had, this is mine. I struggle with praying. It's not easy. I can read five words from the Bible and go crazy. I can spend five hours in prayer and just get up and be like, my knees hurt. Right? Like This is how I am. So I know this can be challenging, but practice prayer. Take your heart and mind in the middle of the day, in the morning or in the evening, whatever it is, and, and submit to his will and ask him to speak to you, right? Maybe you hear something from God vivid. Maybe you don't. The act of getting on your knees or, or bowing your head or laying in your bed or whatever the case is, that act of prayer, whether you get any of those things or you don't, submits your heart to God once again. It submits your heart to him once again and says, I'm here. I know that you're here. Help my heart submit to you again. Confess sin. Friends, confess sin. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. I know it sounds terrifying to be like, here's where I messed up, right? But, but confessing sin, again, takes our heart and our lives and our hands and sees Jesus in his commands and in his definition of how we live our life and submits 
the whole of who we are to him by saying, I've done something that you say is wrong and I'm sorry. Because it's not my will that's done. Father, let it be your will that's done. Right? What a beautiful, humble act uh, before our king. And then receive grace. Because the beautiful truth of the gospel is that when we confess like that, the response of God is not, oh, not again, Josh. The response of God is you're forgiven because of Jesus. Right? These are just some practical ways to connect with God. Friend, maybe you need to go on a hike. Let me be 100% honest with you. That's not my thing. But maybe it's your thing. Maybe seeing mountains connects you with God. Maybe you need to go to Alaska or whatever and see the... Uh, the lights, right, them skylights to be up there. I'm so out of touch with nature, I don't even know what they're called, bro. Um, but, you know, maybe seeing that type of thing makes you go like, oh, man, that's God speaking to me. Go to Alaska. This is a weird one. But, con- con- but, but maybe nature is what connects you is what I'm getting at. Then go to nature, right? Maybe it's people. Go to people, right? You're not restricted. God is reaching out to you in a great love affair trying to connect with you, and he's inviting you to connect with him by any means necessary. Take any means. Pursue him by any means. Connect with him, though. Uh, Friends, I'm praying that as we start here in this idea of saying connect with God, that it begins to build a rhythm that's going to give life to the other two things we're going to talk about this upcoming, uh, these upcoming weeks. As we connect with God, it fuels, man, I want to grow with my family. I want to spend time with the church community because by them, I'm connected to this God. I want to serve the city. I want to serve the community because it's the means by which they are connected to God. Right? I want that because I'm experiencing him. And I hope it's fundamentally something that you'll take with you for the rest of your life. Well beyond your time at Refuge Community Church. And I hope it's something that you will take into eternity as we spend eternity connecting with God in in the most manifest of ways as we're with him for all uh, time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for uh, the patience of uh, everyone here today. I I know I chopped it up a little bit, and now I'm into what I would call extended time. Yet, um, Yet by your grace and your mercy, I pray that we would still hear the words of the Spirit that you desire to speak to our hearts right now. Help us, Father, connect with you. Help us fight the false identities that claim they're going to provide something for us but never actually do. And let us cling to the identity of what it means for Jesus to have entered into the creation and and the frill of the world, into our suffering and into our darkness uh, and into our hurt and into our pain and into our guilt, all to take the cross and say, now you exchange that with the life of blessing that I've earned. Let us walk in that identity now. A walk of forgiveness, of affirmation, of redemption, of beauty. Let us walk in that identity, hand in hand with you as we proceed forth out of this place. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.